So go ahead and turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, and we are going to stand today for the reading of God's Word. This is God's holy, inspired Word, and I think it's very appropriate that we stand today. You can go ahead and stand, it's okay. Go ahead and stand, because one day we all will stand before the throne of God. And and so as we're standing here, I want you to, to picture this scene in your heads, this scene of standing before God's throne. This is His holy, inspired Word. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You may be seated. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for revealing yourself to us through the book of Revelation. You've been doing that for many months. God, thank you for how faithful you've been to open up our eyes to the reality of who you are, the reality of who we are in you, the reality of what is to come. God, I pray that you would enable us to live each day in light of the day we've just read about. God, I pray that we would would love you trusting in you. God, I pray that you would give us confidence to stand before your throne because of you and you alone. God, I pray that you would speak to each and every one of us, that you would open up our our hearts and our minds, that we might hear from you, that we might apply your word. God, would you give us your spirit? We need you. Enliven us, Lord, we pray. And, And I pray that you would give me your spirit as I preach. Would you anoint your word? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I've been to court uh, a few times. Most of the time, most of the time it was not for me. Uh, most of the time it was for others, but several times, I won't say how many, it was for traffic violations over the years. I've gone to court hoping to get the, the charges reduced. I remember the very first time that I went as a teenage boy I think I was 16 or 17. My dad couldn't go. I ended up going on my own to court. And I remember going and standing before the judge. But before that, leading up to it, the experience was a little daunting. I was very full of myself, but I knew better than to be full of myself going into court. And I knew that he had the power to either give me six points, which is what I was going to get on my license, or reducing that. And so I was very positioning myself and trying to position myself in a humble way, but I wasn't looking forward to it for the few days leading up to it. I hadn't experienced that before. And if any of you have ever been to court before or been a part of that legal system where there is an authority who has the power to decide, when the time came, I stood before the judge. He passed judgment on me based on what I had done, and he was merciful. He lowered the points down to three points. It wasn't as bad as I thought, but it made me not want to appear before a judge again. 
I didn't like the experience. It still wasn't like, oh, that was fun. I can't wait to go to court and appear before a judge again. I've never felt that way. I've never thought that going to court with anyone else before either. And I never wanted to appear before a judge again. But unfortunately, you know what? It it didn't make me change my behavior. Um, Unfortunately, I still continued to break the law primarily related to speeding. And... I don't think a month has gone by since I've gotten my license and I haven't broken some kind of traffic law. Now, that's uh, Abby and Noah. Can you please put your hands over your ears? I have two teenagers who are are driving, and um, I can't say I'm a good example in that. If there was some way for a judge to play back all of the times, now think about this, if you're Somewhere in the middle age years or beyond, I'll say that. And think about all the times you've ever sped, like a mile over the speed limit. Any times you've, you've kind of coasted through a stop sign, you've, you've kind of slowed down as you take a right-hand turn. You looked at the red light and you're like, I don't know if I can turn right on red here or not, but I'm going to do it anyway. Or um, when you've done a U-turn, anytime you've done anything illegal in traffic, think about all those times. I, I can't even count those for me. Now imagine a judge could replay all of those things. And then convict you based on all of them. None of us would ever drive. At least I would never drive again. And that's just traffic tickets. But I don't worry about that because a judge can't do that. A judge would never be able to find that out. No one's ever recorded everything I've ever done on traffic laws. They couldn't prove it. It wouldn't be prosecuted. It would be unrealistic, right? And so I continued this morning to go a few miles over the speed limit and most of the time, because everybody does, right? It's an acceptable violation. And that's the way that, unfortunately, though, a lot of people go through their lives in regards to God. They act like he will never find out, like he will never know, he will never see, there will never be consequences, it won't be realistic, it won't stick. Most people have a nagging notion, at least, that they don't want to stand before God to give an account of all they've done. The idea makes most people a little uncomfortable, but many think it'll never happen. A lot of people I've met that they think it's not real, um, or at least they live that way, continue to follow their own way. They deny that they'll have to stand before God. Some people think, well, you know what? I'll get off with a warning. God's pretty good. He's a, he's a, he's a decent guy. I'll get off with a warning, and you know, I, I'll get off with good behavior, God will understand. I've been pretty good. I've tried hard to be kind to other people. He'll give me a place in his eternal home. And I've heard those arguments before, and I think you probably have too. Like, I'm basically a good person. Some try to suppress the truth so they won't have to think about the unpleasant idea that there is a judge. And they will stand before him one day, whether they agree with it or not, whether they pretend that he exists or not. You can say that the sun does not exist, but it will not stop it from shining. Whether people say that God's throne exists in their minds is irrelevant as to whether he really does. People live a fairy tale life thinking, I'll never have to give an account to anyone for how I live. And that's how much of the world lives today. Here's the famous Polonius in Shakespeare's play in Hamlet. He says, you know, that the, to thine own self be true. That was the motto. Today, people put it a little differently. They say, do what you really want, not what other people tell you. Believe in yourself. Just be yourself. Follow your heart. Do what's right for you. 
But this passage, it challenges all those ideas completely. This passage, it brings us down to the place where we can't escape it. And John gives us this very condensed but very direct view of a day that is coming for each and every person on the planet. Each and every person who's ever lived, the great and final day of the Lord, will all stand before a judge, before the throne, and all of our deeds will be revealed. And we'll all be judged based on them. Peter wrote about that day in 2 Peter 3. He wrote, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. I think we have that one for you. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing, lest you think that God is unkind. He's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's why this passage is here. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening and coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? Here's the thing we see today, is that God desires all repent. Why, why would he give us this passage? In Revelation, why would God tell us of something to come? Because he desires that all would repent and live our lives in the reality of that day. So he gave John this direct vision. And there are three truths about the reality of that day that's coming. Whether or not you admit it or agree with it. And the first truth about this future reality that God wants to see is that God is on his great white throne. God is on his great white throne. Look down in verse 11, it says, look, look at how John describes it. Then I saw a great white throne. It's like he's zooming in, and this, this throne is magnificent. It's great. It's white. It says, and him who was seated on it. It's not just a great throne, but from the context of everyone standing before him, this is the greatest throne that's ever existed. This makes any local courtroom pale in comparison. This is the throne from which everybody in all eternity is judged. And it's white to indicate, as we've seen in Revelation before, the absolute purity of God. It's, it's, it's a great. It's a white throne. It's, it's undefiled. It's perfect. It's pure. Not only that, that, that white, that, that glowing whiteness, it symbolizes victory. So this is the victorious, pure, undefiled throne. And who's on the throne? It says, and him who sits on the throne. Well, if you remember back in, in Revelation 19.4, we saw the picture of who it was, Revelation 19.4. It says, And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. Revelation 7.17, it tells us, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And Jesus told of this day as well. In Matthew 25, when Jesus was talking about the day, he says in Matthew 25.31, When the Son of Man comes in his glory... And all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So this is the throne of God, the Father, God, the Son. In a couple more chapters in Revelation, we're going we're gonna to see this glorious picture in the future. In Revelation 22, it says, Then the angel showed to me a river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And then it says in verse 3 of that passage, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. This is 
God the Father and the Son united in judgment. This is the great throne. This is the creator of all sitting on his throne. And then look at else what it says in verse 11. The second half of verse 11, it says, not only is he seated on it, but what happens there? It says, from his presence, from his presence, earth and sky fled away. Now, I can't imagine what John saw exactly, but he synopsizes it. He condenses it. And he says, from this, this presence, earth and sky fled away. His throne is so mighty that the very earth flees. The sky fled away. Earth and sky flood away. Now, now look at the second part of that. It says, and no place was found for them. They couldn't hide. This is a throne so great that the earth and sky flee away and they can't hide from God. There's nowhere to go. Now, I think this, this could be symbolic, but I believe that this is a, as an image of, of God unmaking creation in a moment. This is a, the picture of God doing away with all of creation and in a moment heaven and earth passes away as Jesus said in Matthew 24 but my words will not pass away I think it's what, what Peter referred to in 2 Peter 3.10 he says but the day of the Lord will come like a thief then the heavens will pass away with a roar heavenly bodies be burned up dissolved the earth and the works and it will be exposed we like to think sometimes that we're our own authority don't we? You ever, you ever like to have that notion? You know, if you have kids, that's a short-lived notion. Um, you, you feel like you're an authority, and then you get to be a certain age. Your kids get to be a certain age, and you realize you have less authority than you thought you had to begin with. It was only a delegated, borrowed authority. Maybe you've ever accomplished something. Anybody here have accomplished anything so that now you're more impressive or you had more authority than your peers? Maybe you're, you're made captain in your, in your sports team. Maybe you're the debate team leader in charge of your honor society. Maybe you've been put in a position of authority at school or your job or here at church. You know, sometimes we just feel better when we're associated with people in authority too, right? You kind of, it kind of rubs off on you. You feel better about yourself because you're near somebody else who's in a place of authority. I used to know a guy who was, I still do know him, but he used to, <laughs> used to talk to a guy who's a George Bush impersonator. His name is John Morgan. He was really well known and um, he was... He naturally looked like George Bush, and so he, George W., that is, and he started impersonating him. He was a comedian anyway, so he started impersonating him, and he was so convincing, people would stop him all the time, ask him for his autograph. So when we were living in Canada, he was coming up there on vacation, and we said, you know what we'll do? We'll have him come to our church has this family fun day. We'll just have him come to the church family fun day, but ahead of that, we'll go and visit like the beach and like downtown and start handing out invitations to this family fun day with like George Bush handing them out. And so... We did that. We walked around, and he was like in a suit with a little lapel thing, and four or five of us were dressed up in dark suits with the little squiggly earpieces. We really did. I, I, I couldn't find a picture of us, but so we had these squiggly earpieces, and we would all kind of, you know, stand there menacingly, as menacingly as we could look, and, and we walked around, and people really genuinely, at least in Canada, they really thought that was George W., and they were coming up and asking for his autograph, and then at the end, we'd kind of break it to them, and they would they would be disappointed. But um, <laughs> they thought they met the president and he was playing along for a while and then they realized they really hadn't. But, you know, just standing with him in that moment when they thought this was the president, it, it kind of gave you this, this sense of importance, you know, this, and how silly is that? We like the idea that we can have some authority or be associated with people in authority. 
But this really confronts our idea of authority head on, doesn't it? This, this, this image we have in Revelation. This image of this great white throne that stands above all thrones where the earth and the sky flee away and are, find no place to hide. And if the earth and sky find no place to hide, neither will anyone in all creation. You can't hide from the gaze of the one who sits on the throne who has all authority. You can try. You can pretend like he doesn't exist. You can pretend he won't see you like he won't care. But we're meant to get the weight of this, the effect of that, is to see this throne that the very earth and sky flee from. He is the one who has all authority. He is great. And the second thing we see is that everyone, the second thing we'll see is everyone will stand before this throne. Everyone is standing before this throne. In this image, this is, this is everyone. He says, and look at verse 12, and I saw the dead, great and small. It didn't matter how important people were in this life. The greatest of the greats, the greatest people, the greatest authority, the greatest figures, the most popular people, and yet the most insignificantly seeming insignificant people, they all stand equal before the throne. It's the great equalizer. doesn't matter what you were in this life. All people will stand equally before the throne and be judged in the same way. There's no exceptions. He doesn't leave any room for any exceptions here. God's not impressed by how great someone is, whether they're great in power, great in followers, great in popularity, great financially, great whatever other way you can think. He won't dismiss anybody because of how small and unknown they are either how unpopular they are. We've seen that day prophesied about earlier in Revelation. And, and we're going to do a lot of scripture flipping in this, in this sermon today because I want you to see how the Bible hangs together. But not only the Bible hangs together, I want you to see how Revelation has been leading and building to this. And I want you to know how to handle Revelation. So that later somebody says, oh man, I avoid the book of Revelation. And you're like, really? Let's, it's pretty straightforward, even areas that are confusing. We, there's a lot of really clear things here. Revelation 11.8, it prophesied about this, says, The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, is what we're seeing today, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, for destroying the destroyers of the earth. All the dead will be judged. Now look at verse 13, and it's comprehensive. Not, not just everybody great and small, but it says, um, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. The sea was often looked at as a symbolic place of evil. So there's nowhere you can go to hide from God to keep yourself from having to appear. The sea is going to give up the dead. There will come a day when the very earth and sea erupt and expel the remains of all who've died in all of history. Death and Hades, look in verse 13, gave up the dead who were in them. And death, not being a physical thing, but but it's the place we all will go. We all will die. Hades being the abode of the dead, the place where bodies were buried. The whole earth, the sea, everything's going to give up. Nothing's going to be able to keep people from being resurrected. Don't think you can get away from this day of reckoning is what this passage says. All are being resurrected. In Romans 14, Romans 14, 11, the Apostle Paul wrote, he says, As it is written, for um, as I live, says the Lord, every knee, how many knees? Every knee will bow to me. And every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us, this is written to, um, to believers here in Romans. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now that is something I, I cannot say I'm looking forward to. 
Each of us will give an account of himself to God. There is something there about giving an account of ourselves before God. And that's not esoteric. 1 Peter 4, 5 says, But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Jesus talked about this day when the Son of Man will gather everybody. In Matthew 25, he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he'll sit on his glorious throne, and before him will be gathered all the nations. And he'll separate people from one another. The shepherd separates the sheep and the goats, and he'll place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. God's on his great white throne. Everyone will stand before the throne. But on what basis will he separate and judge people? How will we all be evaluated? Look at the passage again. Look down at verse 12 and 13. I think what it shows is that everyone will be evaluated based on something that's not set by us. Everybody will be evaluated, judged according to God's books. Look at verse 12. It says, and books were opened. You imagine that? Everybody standing before the throne, and then the books are opened. These books of the records of all that everyone has ever done. Then another book was opened. So we see books and then another book. And look, look in the second half of verse 12. And on, on the dead were judged by what? By what was written in the books according to what they had done. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Now look at verse 13. You think that I'm pulling this out? Well, look at verse 13. They were judged. How? Each one of them according to what? According to what they had done. Everyone standing before God's throne. Everyone judged according to God's books. This is the fulfillment, really, of what Daniel saw hundreds of years prior in Daniel 7. He says, and I looked. Thrones were placed. And the ancients of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and his hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. What are we supposed to see here? We're supposed to see that every, everything you've ever done Every action, every inaction, every thought, every word, every attitude of our hearts, no matter whether anybody else ever sees or hears what we do, we cannot keep it hidden before God. It's written. Our lives are writing in these books. Jesus told his disciples, he told them, beware the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, and he told them why in Luke 12. Jesus says, nothing is covered up. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you've whispered in private rooms should be proclaimed on the housetops. I'll tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. There's a consistent theme and message going throughout. There's one day we'll all be accountable. The dead stand here before open books, and the books were records of what they'd done. They're written by the life of every person who ever lived. You know, I forget a lot of the things I've said and done. I hope that my parents will not ever, my, my, my dad will never find out all the things I've 
I've said and done that I'm embarrassed about when I was in the home, much less since then, but this is the great heavenly father. We might forget, but one day God's books of full account of our life will be opened. Nothing be forgotten, nothing left out. What a sobering reality. Daniel 12 tells about this time. It says, that at that time, Michael shall arise, the great prince is charge of your people. There should be a time of trouble. Just has never been seen since the nation, but at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name should be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep on the dust of the earth shall wake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Jeremiah prophesied of the day in Jeremiah 17. He says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man what? According to his ways. Every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. 1 Peter 1, 17, Peter writes, if you call on him as father who judges impartially, how? According to each one's deeds. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Jesus told us that even our careless words matter. Don't, don't think that, oh, I'm good, right? Matthew 12, he says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. That's sobering. According to the Sermon on the Mount, though, it's not just our outward actions, not just our speech, not just what we do or don't do, but Matthew 5, he says, I'll say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Everyone who insults his brother will be liable to counsel. Whoever says you fool will be liable to hell of fire. Verse 27 of Matthew 5, he says, you've heard it said you should not commit adultery, but I say everybody who looks at a woman... With lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus raises the bar. It's not just about what we've done. It's about our actions, our attitude, our thoughts, our intents, everything. And we will give an account, believers and unbelievers alike. Now, let me stop there for a minute. How, how many of us would like to have that record replayed? None of us want to be judged by all the things we've done, the entirety of our lives. Imagine all the things we've done. All the times we're wrong, disobedient, neglectful, lazy, all the sins we've committed. Imagine the list of the things we've failed to do. Things we should have done. How about the things we said that were good, things we were not good, things we shouldn't have said, every idle word, every harsh word, every lie, every half-truth, every slander, every gossip, every unkind, every unloving word. Think about every unloving action, every lustful thought. Every time we've been angry, imagining all those things being rehearsed, being judged according to them. How many of us be volunteering for that? No wonder Peter says, conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile. But this isn't our courtroom. This is God's courtroom. He's in charge. He doesn't judge unfairly. He tells us the standard ahead of time, right? If I told my child the standard by which I would evaluate their behavior and give them consequences based on that. Um, I wouldn't be considered unreasonable if I then gave them a consequence based on them violating the standard I'd set. Now, it's unreasonable as a parent to expect that, hey, if I don't tell my kid to not do something and then I give them a consequence for it, but they didn't know any better, that would be an unreasonable thing. Yet God here is not unreasonable. He's not unfair, even if we don't like it. The only question is, whose truth will we choose to trust in? 
Will we choose to trust in the way the ultimate judge of the universe provides, or will we choose to stand before God based on our own merit? Everybody's going to give an account. Everybody's going to be judged according to what they have done. And there'll be a time when it's too late. After this, there's no, there's no chance for repentance for people who are at this point. None be able to object or say unfair. God will be the true and just judge. He will justly judge all those who reject him. Look at verse 14, what happens. Look at verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. That's the second death, the lake of fire. Death itself will be done away with. The place of death will be done away with. Now, obviously, that's, that's not physical. You can't do away with the place of it, but the very earth will be done away with. The very concept of death will be done away with. Physical death will be burnt up. No more death, no more Hades, no more burying people in the ground. All the effects, here's the good part in that, all the effects of sinful mankind on the earth done away with, erased completely. Completely removed, burnt up. It's the end of death. That's what Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians 15, right? 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, but each according to his own order, Christ, the first fruits, and his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority, and power, for he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is post-death being destroyed. Look at verse 15, the destiny of those who stand according to their own works. Look at verse 15. It says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Anyone who stands on the base of their own works will be thrown into the lake of fire. No one escapes. If you have people you, you know who believe in the idea of universal salvation, this, this completely debunks that. The idea that everybody's going to live happily ever after, that debunks that. The idea that when you go to a funeral and you hear that, yeah, he's golfing with God, even though he was a terrible person, he hated God, but you know what? In the end, he, kinda, he was okay in the last few years, so he's golfing with God. He's on the course now. That's dismissed. The only thing that matters is what's mentioned here is... It's the book of life and whether or not someone's name is written in that. Look back at verse 12. Another book was opened. It's the book of life. There's only two options presented in this passage. There are those whose names are not written in the book of life. They're cast into this eternal, everlasting fire where the worm does not die. Or there's people whose names are written in the book of life. And the question is, how do we make sure that our name is written? And look back at Revelation 13. How do you make sure that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life? How do you make sure? Revelation 13, 8 says, All who dwell on earth will worship, and everyone whose name has not been written for the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb that was slain. This is what this book is. This is the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. So what is it saying? We find life in the Lamb we find life by putting our life in the life of the lamb who was slain, what? For us. We see this book of the lamb that was slain, again, in Revelation 21 and 27. It says, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, talking about God's holy city, nor anyone who does what's destructible or detestable or false, but only those who are written in the lamb's book of life. Do you belong to the lamb? Do you have life in the lamb? Is your name written in his book by his blood? This is the lamb of Jesus who came to earth to live in our place. This is the lamb of Jesus who's, who obeyed God perfectly in every way his entire life. This is the lamb of God who was 
killed on the cross, put to death on the cross for whose sins? For all of our sins. This is the lamb who shed his own blood, turned away God's wrath from himself and onto us. This, I mean, onto himself, from us, onto himself. This is the lamb whose righteous life was accepted and payment made and resurrected the life so we might share in his life. This is the lamb who came so we might be saved and reconciled to God. But how do we get our names in that book? Is your name in that book? You see, our our name is found in the book if our life is found in identification with the lamb being slain. Revelation 1.5 says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and what? Has freed us from our sins by his blood. The lamb who is slain. Revelation 3.5, The one who conquers will thus be clothed in white garments and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Well, how do we conquer? Revelation 5.9, They sang a new song saying, Worthy you to take the scroll and open seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and nation and people. But if one's name is not written in this book, he'll be thrown in the lake of fire. Revelation 14 11 tells us about the destiny. It says, and their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast in his image, whoever receives the mark of his name. How do you get your name then written in the book of life? Is there something you can do? What works do you have to do? If we're all going to be judged according to our works, then what is it talking about here? Well, if you remember back earlier in Revelation 2, He was speaking to the church in Ephesus. This is Jesus talking to his church in Ephesus. And he talks to them about their works. It's kind of surprising because these seven letters to the churches, he's talking to all of them about their works. And then at the end of the book, he says, you're going to be judged according to your works. Now look in Revelation 2. He says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you can't bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. I found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake. You've not grown weary. But I have this against you that you've abandoned the love you had at first. What does he tell them to do? What are the works he tells them to do? Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. The Bible doesn't get away from works. We're going to be judged according to works. But what are those works? Remember from where you've fallen, do the works. Hold fast to his word. Don't be, don't be misled by false teaching contrary to the gospel. In Thyatira, in Revelation 2.19, it says, I know your what? Your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, your latter works. See the verse, but I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching, seducing my servants who practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. And then he tells them they're to do works. What? To hold fast to the word that's been given. Revelation 3.8, he tells him again to Philadelphia. He says, behold, I know your works. Behold. I thought that, wait a minute, I thought this wasn't about works. He, he, he keeps addressing the church based on their works. Revelation 3.8, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one's able to shut. I know you have little power and you have kept my word and not denied my name. Works here, they're related to the word that's been given and not denying his name. So it's faith in him and his word and his name. That's the kind of works. Galatians 2.16, we know this says, by the works of the law, no one's going to be justified, right? We know that. We're, we're, we're Christians after all. So what kind of works? Well, Jesus tells us of the kind of works. In, in John, 5, John 6, John 6.28, Jesus said, then they said to him, what must we do 
to be doing the works of God? That should be a question in all of our minds, right? What must we do to do the works of God? And Jesus answered them. He tells us what the work is. This is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. That's the only work that will last. It's, it's not even a work. It's believing in him who he sent. That's God's work. And it's us putting our faith in God's work. One day you're going to stand in God's courtroom. That day is certain. God's on his great white throne. Everybody's going to stand before that throne of judgment. Everyone will be judged according to those books. What confidence will we have to stand before the great white throne? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in him who he sent? Are you in the book of life of the lamb that was slain? And then are you living that way? Are you living in light of that day? You can't pretend you're in the book. You can't pretend that you believe in Jesus. You can't set up this falsehood. You can't play church. It's not about pretending to be somebody you're not. It's not about trying to be good enough, earn favor before God. It's not about, I'm going to do all the right things, say all the right things, live an acceptable life, but yet you're dead to God in your heart. No, it's everybody who believes in him who he sent. Everybody who puts their trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Everybody who believes that there's only one way to the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. Everyone who truly believes and lives in light of the fact that he has borne all of our sins, taken away God's wrath so that we will be able to stand on that day. Martin Luther once said, he says he has two days in my calendar. He says, there's only two days in my calendar, today and that day. How about you? Do you know the forgiveness of God from all your sins, of your mind, your actions, your works, your deeds, your attitudes? Are you putting your trust wholly in Jesus and him alone? How about your family? How about your friends? How about people in your neighborhood? One day all of us are going to stand before the throne. Everybody's going to give an account. Our destiny is going to be announced. Either you're found in the book of life we can be read aside all the things we've done and judged accordingly and thrown in a lake of fire. The question is, do you really want to be judged based on all the things you're going to give an account for? Or do you want that account to be read as embarrassing as it is, as shameful as that account that might be read? And I don't know how that's going to occur. I don't know if that's a private audience or if that's a public thing. He says it's going to be in the light. So I kind of think that that account will all still give an account, and yet at the end of that account, he'll say, Paid in full. And that will result in praise and honor and glory to Jesus. Because all those accounts, you'll be humbled, we'll all be humbled. And then he'll say, paid. No longer. No debt stands against you. There is no debt. No debt remains. All of those sins have been paid for completely. But not only will the account be wiped out, that's, that's a cause for rejoicing. I believe that the account of his life, because it says that, that his righteousness is imputed, given to us. So that account is read. You feel the weight. I think we'll feel the weight of that. And then we'll feel the rejoicing of the fact that that's all been paid for already. No sin remains for all those who believe in him. But not only that, 
all of the righteous acts, all the ways that Jesus was perfectly obedient to God, he will say, righteous. For all those who are in the book of life. For all those who've been born again in Jesus, no matter what's written in the book of all the things we've done, whether or not those charges will be public or not. All the charges against us, if you believe, have already been placed in the ledger of Christ and the count has been marked, paid in full. All the things you'll do in the future. So how then should we live, though? We won't be judged with those who trusted in themselves. We'll be judged with those who trusted in Jesus. And in the final account, we won't be judged. We'll give an account, but we won't be judged. John 5 tells us that. All of the deeds of Jesus will be credited to us. And we're still going to be judged based on works, just on the basis of his works. And by the end of this passage, all judgment's completed. God's on his throne. Everyone's standing before his throne. Everyone's judged according to God's books. Here's the good news. There's no more opposition. No more sin, no more rebellion against God's rules, good order, his benevolent reign. God in all of his infinite goodness and purity and holiness, his unbounded love, he'll rule over us and we will enjoy God fully with all of the account wiped clean. And every sin that we have, we can say, done, he's paid for it, done, he's paid for it, he's paid for it. And I believe that will result in, in worship to God. I think we're left with this place. Say, how are we going to live in light of this? Will we live with two days in our calendar? How are we going to live knowing that we're going to stand before that judge? Will we live trusting in Jesus or trusting in our own selves? Let's pray and have the band come up.